We're beginning uh, this next section of our day with another uh, panel discussion, and our topic is truth and text, implications for Bible translation. And I want to introduce our panel members to you. First of all, we have Dr. Bill Barrick. Uh, Bill serves at the Master's Seminary, where he is the director of the THD program there. But prior to coming to uh, the Master's Seminary, uh, Bill served in Bangladesh in a number of capacities, uh, assisting the church there uh, in updating and editing uh, a number of Bible translations. And uh, Bill has been one of those individuals who, in our context, has been the clearest and soundest voice on how we should approach Bible translation and uh, understands it both from a firsthand perspective as well as a professor uh, at the seminary. And we're so indebted to you, Bill, for joining us. Thank you for your years of ministry, both here as well as in Bangladesh. And we look forward to your comments today. Next to Bill is Dr. Aaron Shryock. Aaron, uh, most recently, uh, has been serving in Cameroon as a Bible translator, Wycliffe Bible Translators, as well as SIL International. Uh, Aaron is a rare individual. He has completed a degree in linguistics at UCLA, but also uh, a Master's of Divinity degree uh, at the Master's Seminary. And you'll hear one of the themes uh, that we'll talk about today is the wedding of theological education with Bible translation. So Aaron, thank you for joining us and sharing your observations. Next to Aaron is Kyle Davis. Kyle is the founder of the Bible Translation Fellowship as well as Together for the Bible. And Kyle uh, has his advanced uh, master's degree in the area of Bible translation and has a real passion for uh, really championing a a new generation for engagement in Bible translation and particularly, uh, as I said, uh, networking or or connecting the dots between theological education, uh, pastoral training, and Bible translation. So Kyle, it's good to have you with us today. And uh, finally, joining us on our panel is Michael Chalmers. Michael is uh, the ASP president at the Master's Seminary and has been a great encouragement to me. Uh, before coming to the seminary, he'd done an extensive amount of research uh, focused on the uh, issue of providing a modern Hebrew translation uh, for the uh, Old Testament. And uh, it's a curious thing to consider, but uh, he is convicted that this is a necessary thing to do and uh, has done the research to demonstrate uh, the validity and necessity of doing such a work and has really taken the responsibility for coordinating our panel. So, Michael, thank you for your leadership. We're indebted to you as well. Well, truth and text, Bible translation. Why are we talking about this in the context of a conference on inerrancy? Uh, Let me tell you a little bit of story, and this will kind of tee up uh, my perspective. I was in Uganda a number of years ago uh, at a pastor's conference. A dear group of uh, national pastors there who loved God's word and were doing everything within their uh, ability and the strength of the Lord to shepherd and to teach and and to guide their congregations. Uh, It was the case for these men as I asked them, uh, what kind of pastoral training have you had? And they said they'd all completed uh, one to two years of seminary training. I said, well, tell me about the curriculum. And they said, uh, well, candidly, the curriculum didn't include any courses on theology. It was courses on church administration, very practical things. And this is the emphasis in pragmatism that we've been hearing about. But I remember uh, after one of the sessions, they all were given uh, a new NASV Bible translation uh, in English. And they all pulled out their Lugandan, their national language translation. And there were probably 120 men who had, uh, were attending. And 
at first there was a lot of noise in the room. They were very excited about getting this new Bible. But as we were passing out, I noticed it got very quiet in the room. And I finally turned around and I saw what the men were doing. They'd pulled out their Lugandan translation with this English translation. They began to compare. And the silence was broken by a man who stood up with tears in his eyes and he says, I need to repent. I have not been teaching the truth to my people. Uh, I see now clearly where there are some differences or even errors in this national translation. In training men to lead the church and pastor the church, we understand the necessity that they have a sound text in their hands, but not just them. For their churches to become Bereans, to be people who are biblically literate, they need to have an accurate text in their own hands. And so we believe that this is an important issue for us to address today in the context of this conference. And I want to begin uh, this afternoon by asking this question. Does inerrancy demand that we are more concerned about the number and quality of Bible translations today? And I thought, Bill, maybe you could lead us off uh, in your response to that question. So does inerrancy demand that we're more interested in the number and quality of translations? Yes. Well, I think definitely the quality of translations, (laughs) uh, that's directly related. The reason we translate the Bible is because we believe it was inerrant as it was given by God. And if we believe in biblical inerrancy, that then demands of us that we try to come across with a translation into another language that is essentially the same as what we see in the original languages. Uh, If we believe that the original languages are flawed or errant, then we don't really have a foundation to build on or to translate, and then it's open game as to what we come up with. And as far as the number of translations, the very fact that we're convinced that we're born again by the Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, James chapter 1, that uh, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God in Romans 10. As we look at those things, we realize that we cannot do evangelism, we cannot do church planting without the Word of God. Uh, It's all through the Word of God. And so we've got to have a translation, and uh, if we want to reach every language on earth with a gospel, then we're going to have to have a translation in every language as well, if, if at all possible. Can I just jump in there? Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that, Dr. Barrick. I remember earlier Chris Williams said uh, the Bible is absent, and he was referring to expository preaching, that Bible is absent in Asia in terms of the pulpit. And I would just uh, echo what Dr. Barrick was saying, that I just want to throw some statistics out there because I find that most uh, believers and, and Christians and church budgets are missing the Bible in terms of Bible translation, as Dr. Barrick just said. There's over 7,100 languages in the world, and we know the promises of God to reach every tribe, tongue, people, and language. And yet out of over 7,000 languages, only 531 have a translation. And even in places like Nepal, where there's 100 languages with, without the Word of God, yet the Nepali pastors will say, and we need a new Nepali translation. I was talking to a brother from Ethiopia, same thing. So even the translations that have been done of the 531, revisions need to be done. Who's been left behind to train those who have been theologically well-trained in exegesis, in theology, in hermeneutics, in the biblical languages? So it helps just to get a little bit of the landscape, Mark, to, to know the numbers, the, the quantity, And then, of course, uh, we are men of quality, as Dr. Barrick has has just talked about. Aaron? 
Could I, I just to jump on what um, my brothers have said here, when you think about taking the gospel to a new group of people, and we've talked today about the dangers of syncretism, talked about uh, contextualizing in a good sense, you know, doing your theology in the local context. If you don't have translation as part of that, you're going to sink. Because how do you even know that they've, they've grasped the basic concepts of the gospel in their own language if you haven't taken the time to carefully research their language, their concepts, how to convey that in sound in a sound translation, um, I think a lot of people put too much confidence in their trans in their um, translator. I mean, you go somewhere, you you preach a message to a, gr a group, um, everyone applauds you. You come home, you thought you had an effective ministry across culturally, but really you didn't know what they said, and you don't know why they were so happy you were there. Um, you don't even. I mean, in some cases, some cultures. They are so hospitable, like the brother from Africa shared. Hospitality is so much a part of the culture that you could have said anything and done anything, and they would say, thank you for coming. No one has done what you have done today. <laughs> so, but the reality is someone needs to spend the time to do the hard work of understanding their worldview and how to accurately translate this message into their language, and then you have the grounds for a biblical theology. Now, Aaron, I introduced you and said you're a little unique because you've got both theological and linguistic training. Uh, why would that be the exception today? Could you comment on really the process of translation, what the emphasis maybe today is in translation as far as linguistics, and uh, your opinion then of maybe how we could make some progress in that regard? Well, my, my personal experience has been that um, I went to Indiana University to study linguistics with um, a sense that God was calling me into mission work. And then I went on and studied more and more linguistics. And when I was at UCLA studying linguistics, a friend invited me to, the, to Grace Community Church. And so that's when I first um, started to realize that Yes, I need theological training too. And various people encouraged me along the line and eventually I, I went to the Master's Seminary and finished off my training and realized that you know, there's sort of a, a divide in the world of Bible translation. There are the quote-unquote technical side, the people who have degrees in linguistics or... Um, um, well, usually in linguistics, and they view it as a technical work. It's not a spiritual work per se. It's a technical task. Um, and then you have others um, more towards on our side, I would say, that would say this, you know, you need to be trained as a pastor. You need to know your theology. You need to know your biblical languages. Are your elder qualified to do this kind of ministry? That, that um, camp, which I think is the right camp, and which... I hope would pull, you know, in, in, at the end of the day, I think you need both. You need as much training as you can get to do Bible translation. You never stop learning um, if you're involved in Bible translation. But unfortunately, there's this divide, and I see Kyle's ready to, <laughs> to say something about this, because as um, Kyle shared with me earlier, there's a need to see the translator as a pastor and theologian all together. Um, Very good. 
Go ahead, Kyle. Jump in? I want to throw sure. a softball to Dr. Barrick on this, but um, the ESV Bible that was recently done has over 100 scholars with terminal degrees, some of them multiple. The study Bible has 250 scholars, right? And so what Aaron's talking about, this is why Dr. Tadlock is saying that Aaron is unique. Um, Dr. Carson's little book, Jesus, the Son of God, where he was dealing with how do you translate the Greek word huios in Muslim context and the contextualization issue. And Dr. Carson addressed the issue that Aaron just mentioned, that uh, translators need a lot of training. And yet in the English language, we have committees of hundreds of people. And that we know in Matthew 9, the, the harvest is plenty and the workers are few. And so there's, there's few guys translating. It's easy. It's easy for us to critique any translation organization. It's easy for us to say, you know, they're not doing it right. They're not being faithful. They're less literal. They, they only have linguistic training. Got it. Great. The question comes back to us, what are we doing? What percentage, what percentage of our budget is going towards the word of God to serve the global church? And our, when we send a, 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 a pastor, when we send a missionary, is he even thinking about how he can offer his skills, his sermon notes to the translator down the street? I'll just finish with this and then ask Dr. Barrick's uh, wisdom because he spent so much time in Bangladesh doing this. But what Aaron's been able to accomplish often happens in a committee. Um, and, and, and there has been this divide with, with the rise of linguistics as an academic discipline. And then the rise of the parachurch is a very specialized. Everyone has a specialized ministry. Bible translation has been ripped from the local church ministry and ripped from theological education. So that no more do we have the William Carey pastor, the William Tyndale pastor, the Martin Luther pastor, who, who then sees a need for a translator, who loves the local church, who loves the flock, who can preach and teach, who, Ephesians 4, who's equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's rare today. I've been in 30 countries, hundreds of missionaries I've spoken with. It's rare because linguistics has gone so, so much forward. And, and, and what we're advocating here is, is to just serve, come alongside these existing linguists and offer the skills of theology, biblical languages, hermeneutics, because they're not getting that training, but they actually want it. It's called an exegetical consultant. And as a pastor missionary, if you have any training in theology, hermeneutics, the biblical languages, you have a ton of skills and gifts to offer your local translator. I don't know if you want to talk more about how you did that in Bangladesh. or Well, obviously... A team is the best way to work. And part of that is because when you're doing Bible translation, you're dealing with far more than just language. Uh, you need someone who has some linguistic background. Uh, in our case, on, in Bangladesh, we had two of us that had pursued some linguistic training. I did mine on my own, took a little bit from uh, with a class my wife was taking in linguistics at the University of California. And then also we had a lady on the field that had done some SIL work and gotten training in, in linguistics. And we also invited some uh, Wycliffe Bible translators out to do different language surveys for us because the country of Bangladesh wasn't allowing them to come in and stay. They'd come in on a tourist visa for two weeks, but after that they had to leave. But when you're lo looking at the Bible, look, First, First Kings chapter 8 is architecture and engineering. 
Uh, Leviticus chapter 13 is dealing with various forms of skin disease. Uh, you have those chapters dealing with lists of clean and unclean animals. You have the 12 different gems in the breastplate of the high priest. You have the different gems forming the different uh, foundations of the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation. Uh, we, there's so much. There's geography. There's history. There's biology. There's zoology. There's gemnology. There's architecture. There's engineering. There are weapons of war. There are cultural accoutrements. Uh, there are every area of knowledge you can think of is going to be involved in Bible translation. No single individual has that much intelligence or breadth of knowledge. Uh, he has to depend upon others. He has to depend upon resources. The best translations are those that have teams of individuals that pool their skills and what all the gifts that God has given them, the knowledge and training so that they might do a superb job and uh, accomplish it. And what Kyle is getting at here is as churches, we need to realize that we can't just say, okay, we're sending out only church planters and evangelists. What are they going to use? Just expect them to take an English Bible and translate it into the language of the people that they're talking to, and they've just learned the language themselves and are like babies in it to begin with. Wait a minute. Uh, we have to have the Bible. We have to have the Word. The foundational ministry churches need to be interested in and involved in is making certain that we have God-appointed people trained and committed to going out and doing Bible translation so that we can take the sword of the Spirit and use it among peoples to give the gospel and to plant and establish churches. Uh, so we need to be talking about that as churches. We need to be involved in that. We need not to leave it to other groups. We need to be supporting it. We need to be supporting it in every possible way, not just financially, but in prayer, in recruiting, in sending out other people with skills that can work alongside the translator, even relieving them of some of their responsibilities uh, so that they can uh, give attention to the work. Uh, you talked to Mike Chalmers about the Hebrew Bible project in Israel, and you might think, wait a minute. That's, isn't that counterintuitive to go to Israel where they speak Hebrew to translate the Hebrew Bible into Hebrew? It's not counterintuitive. And as he explains it to you and talks to you about it, you get an understanding that, hey, there's a real need here that we tend to miss, and that is languages change. Uh, I'm constantly amazed that as my Hebrew courses are taught online, I'm getting letters from Hebrew-speaking Israelis thanking me for teaching them classical biblical Hebrew. And in addition to that, I get uh, letters back and emails from people at the uh, Hebrew University talking about students we send them there and what they know about the Hebrew Bible that their students from Israel don't know. And you begin to see there's a real need. That was one of the most amazing things to me about... Uh, digging into one language. These gentlemen have dealt with a number of different languages. And for me, I was approaching it actually as a business student, trying to inquire of the need for this, uh, this resource and really learned that this is 
sort of a microcosmic view of all translations that people in every country uh, can tend toward thinking that one translation is an essential translation and it becomes rooted in their society, the church uh, culture, to the point where they will not relinquish that translation even if it becomes to, it comes to a point where their children can no longer understand it. And so the idea of the the changing nature of language. And you, you read all of these uh, biographies of Tyndale, for instance, Danielle's biography of Tyndale is brilliant in showing you even the difference between a Wycliffe when he spoke English and translated English for the first time into a, a written manuscript. And uh, from him uh, up till Tyndale, the, the change in the language and that it wasn't really uh, a very long time between them. This is, a, this is another reason why we really have to be aware. Uh, and I'm just learning. I'm the junior on the team here. But uh, it's, just, it's important for all of us to understand that. And as we're being trained theologically and as we're training others to realize that we do have a way of being involved with these projects. And really, I think, according to our view of inerrancy and scripture, uh, it really it's our obligation to be part of translations. Mike was, Mike was doing his MBA and decided to choose for his capstone project this study of whether the viability and validity of a, of a new translation. So no matter what skill or gift you have, it can be used in service to giving uh, the global church God's word. He used his MBA to study this need. So uh, whatever your background, just consider and pray whether you might use that to the glory of God among the nations in the languages for the glory of Christ. I want to get your response to this thought. Uh, We've been talking about the influences of uh, skepticism, a diminished uh, confidence in the authority of God's word, and in a cross-cultural context, uh, the extremes of of what we might say a hyper-contextualization that elevates the culture over the scripture as the authority base. So that's the context for my question. Uh, which is, what are the implications on Bible translation? Uh, There are different philosophies of Bible translation. Uh, I could point to something like the insider movement uh, with regard to Muslim evangelism and uh, arguments that are being made for how to treat the translation of the text uh, in that regard. And I appreciate your comments on what we should be aware of and uh, be concerned about with regard to some of those, those influences. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's a, a, a serious issue, the um, insider movement. If you're not aware, the insider movement is just, um, it's a group of, it's a mission movement among those working with Muslims. The idea is that you want your converts to stay inside Islam as a witness as long as possible. So, you know, according to this view, you know, anything justifies the end. It's a sort of extreme pragmatism. Anything justifies the end. If I can just keep my convert in the mosque long enough, if I, as a missionary, could just, you know, you know, bow enough in the mosque and stay there long enough to make relationships, to share the gospel, and it, it's taken extreme form in producing um, some translations that um, tinkered with the word, with the phrase son of God. Let's you know, let's not offend, let's replace it with Messiah of God or some other biblical phrase. And, I mean, the, it, it's so simple, an error, that it just defies um, 
it's just hard to believe that people would seriously say this is a viable translation. But unfortunately, people are making that point on the grounds that we want the Muslim to read this. So we'll take Son of God out of our translation of Matthew so that the Muslims will read it. But, I mean, the, any, anyone, I mean, if you think about it for a moment, a serious Muslim scholar will look at your translation and say, ha ha, this thing is as corrupt as I believed. Because my Arabic translation here says son of God and your new translation doesn't, you know. And then for the um, Muslim who is not informed, um, they're not gonna be offended anyway, right? So, I mean, you don't gain anything except to look novel and maybe cutting edge <laughs> in your circle as a missionary, but definitely not, um, you know, being faithful to the translation. So if, if you have a low view of scripture and if you have a high view of pragmatism, you can go anywhere. Um, and unfortunately, we see that too often. That's just a reminder why we need to be doing Bible translation. I think that also uh, points to the fact that so many of you in this room, if you were on a pa translation panel, you would easily identify some of those errors. Uh, one example I heard was when uh, Jesus is told in Luke 13 that, uh, that Herod was out to get him, he responded by calling him a fox. And in one culture, these people say that, the, that a fox, to be a fox means that someone cries a lot. So they didn't want to translate the word fox because it would convey the wrong meaning. Rather than educating their people on what exactly fox in the context of Luke 13 meant. And that's what we really want to kind of convey to everybody here, especially in those with theological degrees that you deal with and those with any amount of serious theological training, is be involved in these translation projects and enter those conversations. You can be a voice in those things for the glory of God. And just a balancing point, uh, there's over-contextualization that goes on. And Aaron gave perfect example of it with the Son of God issue. Uh, but there's also the viewpoint, like in Bangladesh, where we were in a country that's 85% Muslim, uh, the second largest concentration of Muslims on the planet. And as we work there, we produced a Muslim language uh, uh, Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Uh, we chose to do that because the Muslims in Bangladesh had enough of a different form of Bengali that it was linguistically legitimate and sound to produce a translation that used some of their religious terms, not all of them. We didn't give up the uh, identity of the Son of God, for example. Uh, but it, they did speak a different form of Bengali than the rest of the people in the country. So we had two different Bengali translations. We had a common standard Bengali. We had a Muslim Bengali translation. And both groups of people felt extra comfortable with that language. Uh, but there are others who are working in the country who decide to go to the extreme on the uh, matter of uh, contextualization and did produce a translation that uh, omitted the name or title of Son of God and also began to work on other issues where we felt uncomfortable with that and kept uh, on with doing what we were doing. I think it's important for those of you who are missions elders uh, in your church to become better informed 
on the trends in Bible translation, the different philosophies. If you're going to advise or counsel those in your church to be engaged in this work, you would be well served to investigate you know, what agencies actually hold to today and, and where uh, their teams in different regions of the world hold to different biases in their philosophy of translation uh, so that you can best shepherd and counsel them in this regard. I want to close by asking Aaron to uh, just repeat an observation he made to me. Uh, I was making the mistakes one day in my discussion with him of waxing on the urgent need for us to be involved in Bible translation. There's so many uh, aberrant uh, translations, and he he just graciously, as a good brother does, quieted me. And uh, your advice to me was don't throw out every Bible translation, but that we should be involved in two things, if you recall. You don't? I'll remind you, and then I'll let you explain. It it served me well. It impacted me. Uh, The first thing you said is there's a number of good translations, but it may be a few texts, specific texts that need to be edited or revised. And that was your counsel to not always throw the baby out with the bathwater. And the second was the emphasis uh, and the need for good uh, study notes in these Bibles. So maybe you could explain those two thoughts. Okay. Well... I'll save time for you, Dr. <laughs> but yes, I mean, um, I think it's, it's easy to come into a new country, new situation. Um, you meet some of the local leaders, maybe the young, young interested, young pe- younger leaders interested in you, and they say, we need a new translation or we need theological education in English or whatever the language is because our translation is just so old and unreliable. When, in fact, you know, you, it may just be that they're not comfortable with that language. and the, It's the language of their grandparents, but it's still a good translation. Maybe there's just some, a few words that need to be tweaked or such, but not to just throw it out entirely. Um, I think that was the idea, was to, to give, give the translation, you know, a, a shot, give it a chance. And maybe some study notes would just faci- to rough out those spots where, you know, for the newer generation, it might not be as easy to understand the translation. Because a translation is an, it's a, it's an incredible commitment. I mean, it, it's 20 years or more of work to do a translation. So I would be remiss to just quickly dismiss it. And then second, every translation needs to be revised. They, they say that, you know, like every 50 years or so, you need to revise a translation. So maybe it's more an issue of a, of a revision with study notes or such. Um, so I think that was what I was yeah. after. Thank no you. translation is inerrant. Yes. Only the original manuscripts given by God were inerrant. When you mentioned you opened with a New American Standard Bible illustration, this is the New American Standard Update, 1995. It still has the same mistaken translation in it that was in the New American Standard for its entire history. It was not changed until about the third or fourth reprinting of the American Standard Update in Psalm 14, verse 4. So it's only the originals that are inerrant. These are errant because we're errant men who are involved in Bible translation. And so as you're looking at that, keep in mind that God is constantly using a word in translation that has errors in it to bring people to himself. The word of God is not bound by bad translation. But 
that doesn't excuse us from producing bad translation. God holds us accountable for adding to or subtracting from his word, and that's got to be our goal to be as close to the inerrant word as possible in what we produce. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you. I want to uh, encourage you who've listened to this panel and had your curiosity sparked and you're interested to learn more about this, to take advantage of the resources that Kyle's put together on his website for uh, the Bible Translation Fellowship. Uh, matter of fact, he has an exhibit upstairs with some cards and contact information. Uh, so please uh, take advantage uh, of that. Gentlemen, thank you for your work in helping us think through this issue today. I appreciate it. Great. Great.